So the wizened old hobbit Bilbo Baggins taught his nephew, young Frodo. Uh, he knew from his own experience of following some dwarves in an attempt to steal a gem and slay a dragon. And Frodo, too, would come to understand this in his way. Uh, through his trials from the Shire, through Bree to Rivendell, the Mines of Moria, all the way to Mount Doom in his attempt to destroy the evil ring of Sauron. It's the importance of these paths, these trails taken, that had made Gandalf's loss so devastating in The Lord of the Rings uh, to Frodo and to his quest. You see, Gandalf was their leader and their guide. He had fallen in battle. And from there, Frodo's own path would be winding. Eventually, he was forced to rely upon the treacherous Gollum. Uh, but throughout, as you're around Gollum and Frodo, the question is, could Gollum's paths be trusted? Even when dangerous, Gandalf's ways were wise and right. But Gollum, well, his counsel was shrewd. His ways could be misleading and deceptive. In life, how are you and I to know the paths we should take? How are we to navigate the trials and the abundances, the, the joys and the sorrows, the heartbreak and the affliction, the highs and lows that we face? How are we to keep our feet? This morning, this Palm Sunday, we come to one of the most beloved passages in all of Scripture. We come to Psalm 23. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there now. Now, before we consider Psalm 23, we have to understand something of the narrative plot of the book of Psalms. Okay, so if, if you're like me, you tend to typically uh, think about the Psalter as 150 discrete individual solitary units. You can pick a Psalm at random, study it, meditate on it, and profit from it. And of course, that is totally true. You, you can do that. Uh, next week, we're going to really dive in to Psalms 1 and 2 and how we get from the beginning of the Psalter to Psalm 24. But for now, I just want to look briefly, before we get to Psalm 23, at Psalms 20 and 21 and 22. Uh, because I think the book of Psalms has a plot line to it, there is something that we need to do, some, some work, before we get to Psalm 23 to understand where we've been in the story. Uh, so just verses, Psalms 3 to 19 are all written by and focused on David, the king of Israel. And then in Psalms 20 and 21, there's a shift as David begins to lead the whole congregation of the nation of Israel in prayer to God. It's really interesting. David, who is the king, is praying for the king of Israel. So Psalm 20 begins. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you, and that's a singular you, in the day of trouble. Verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we, it's obviously plural, May we shout for joy over your singular salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. 
Uh, so we see that David is leading the nation on behalf of this future anointed one. Now, he's not praying for himself, per se. Now, he's praying for the, the king who is to come. And, and then verse 9, O Lord, save the king. May God answer us when we call. After the first 19 Psalms had been really focused on the anointed king of Israel individually, here we see the nation interceding for the success of their king. The point is that, that God, our fate, rises and falls with his fate. He's our champion and our hero. So, Lord, save the king. May you answer him when he calls. Psalm 21 continues these themes. Uh, just look at verse 1. And notice how the exact same language, similar language as Psalm 20 is used. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire. David and the nation is confident that God will vindicate and save the anointed king. And yet, look how Psalm 22 begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? That same word, from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. We remember they had just prayed in confidence that God would answer them. That God would answer the king. And yet in Psalm 22, the Lord seems not to answer. God, you are not saving me. You are not answering my cries. Everything that Psalm 20 and 21 prayed for in confident expectation had fallen to the ground. And so for the next 20 verses of Psalm 22, uh, David's enemies attack him. They're compared to wild dogs, ravenous lions, horns from a wild ox. And incredibly, in the middle of the Psalm 22, uh, the Lord does deliver David from certain death. With the result that Psalm 22, verse 22 states, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then he basically repeats that for a few more lines. Well, friends, what does it look like to praise God? Psalm 23, verse 1, our passage, Yahweh, the Lord, is my shepherd. David had said, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And Psalm 23, the very first word, Yahweh, the Lord. In short, you can't understand Psalm 23 unless you understand Psalm 22 and all that came before it. So we're going to actually cover more of the kind of narrative of the book of Psalms next week. So let me encourage you to, to come back as we think through that. Uh, but for now, we're going to walk through Psalm 23. Um, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. The Lord is the good shepherd who perfectly cares for his sheep. The Lord is the good shepherd who perfectly cares for his sheep. So look with me at Psalm 23, beginning in verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Well, for a good reason, the opening line here is one of the most beloved verses in all the Bible. The Lord, or Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. What's so significant about the name of God that David had said he was going to tell of God's name to his brothers? You know, obviously his fellow Israelites knew the name of God. It's not like David was like, hey, I'm going to tell you something that you don't already know. But when he says, I will tell of your name, when he says, the Lord, the point is that in God's name, he reveals his glory and his grace, his character and his nature. The, the name Yahweh or the Lord, it's the ultimate self-covenant making, the ultimate revelation of who he is. Yahweh is the covenant making, covenant keeping, all wise, all good, all powerful, benevolent, thrice holy, loving, just, righteous, beautiful, saving, gracious God. The Lord, he, that God, he is my shepherd. Of course, David was intimately familiar with the task of shepherding. He himself had been one. You know, a shepherd was charged with caring for the flock of sheep, which was no small task in those days. Uh, They didn't have climate-controlled barns. They didn't have animal feed at the store ready on hand. There was no goat yoga or petting zoos in David's day. Uh, Shepherds led a rough life in a way. They had to lead the flock through the wilderness to secure food and good grazing grounds, to find water and drinking streams, to ward off vicious animals, to protect the sheep against thieves and brigands, to be on the watch against disease and ill health. The life of the shepherd was given entirely to the care of the sheep. I loved what Zach prayed earlier where he he's confessed how we often don't think of ourselves as sheep. Uh, there's something deeply humble about David's confession here. You know, he's the king. You might think, hey, I'm the shepherd. And indeed, Scripture does call the kings of Israel shepherds. But most fundamentally, who is wise, guiding, and protecting. He requires the Lord. Why does David use this imagery of, of shepherd here? Why does he say the Lord is my my refuge after that salvation of Psalm 22? Or the Lord is my my stronghold, my fortress? You know, he he does that in other places. Scripture does that many times. I think one potential answer is that in Psalm 22, his enemies are described as wild oxen, dogs, and lions. If you remember to 1 Samuel 17, uh, when David is about to go fight Goliath, he's kind of uh, he's given us a recap of his shepherding exploits. And do you remember he says, yeah, I've fought lions and bears. And then he goes to Goliath. And what does Goliath say? What am I, a dog? 
I think what we're supposed to see is the Lord is protecting David from the lions, the, the oxen, the dogs, like a shepherd. Uh, David looked back to his own experience, and he said, yeah, that's kind of the way that I took care of the sheep. Well, to a much greater extent, that's what the Lord does with us. He protects us from our enemies. He guides us. Friends, what a comfort it is to know that God is a shepherd towards his people. Because the, the whole job of the shepherd is to care for the flock, right? I mean, that's, you know, you know those memes, it's like, you had one job. That's kind of what it is for the shepherd. You have one job, take care of the sheep. So the welfare of God's people isn't incidental or passing in God's mind. For me, as a, as a husband and father, uh, there are a lot of plates that I'm trying to keep spinning at our house, uh, people I'm trying to keep alive, housing projects I'm trying to keep track of. And so I'll be honest, there are times when we're trying to grow grass and plant tulips, and I'm trying to finish the wall in the upstairs bedroom, and I'm trying to take care of the baby and spend time with Kate and the other kids. Uh, we have killed many a potted plant. I just don't give them to us, please. They will not last long. I've got like more important things to do than take care of the plant. So if you're a plant person, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade at you, but well, friends, God, for his glory's sake, has no greater task than the welfare of his people. As shepherd, he has given himself to caring for his sheep. God does not get distracted from this task. He is not negligent or lazy in his shepherding work. For the glory of his own name, the care of his people is paramount in his own. Take you. If you. This means, friends, he's never going to leave you or forsake you. If you are in Christ, your prospering in Christ is his desire and his work and his, his chief goal and aim. And in a day and age like ours, with news from the four corners of the globe, with tragedies like Nashville and nations at war and marriages on the brink and children that go wayward and friendships that teeter, what a comfort it is to know that God is watching over his people. There are lots of unexpected things that happen in your life. There are no unexpected things to God that happen to your life. So whatever news you learned this week or this past month that was not on your agenda, it may have been challenging and a surprise to you. You can be sure that God is with you as your shepherd. If you are in Christ, as Isaiah 40, 11 states, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Brothers and sisters, praise God. He is not a harsh shepherd, but a gentle and caring one. He knows what the lambs need. He, he knows what those with young need. He carries them and provides and protects them. Such that David can say, I shall not want. I, I shall not lack. I shall not be in want of anything. Uh, it's the same word found in Deuteronomy 2 
When Moses states, the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands, Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. That is, God provides for his people. Right? He's a good, shop, he's a good shepherd, not an incompetent one. As one commentator writes, how can the saints want? The Lord will give them every good thing, every good cross, every good comfort, every needed chastisement, every needed supply, all timely lessons, all good deliverances. Friends, like a wise doctor, the Lord doesn't flatter us by giving us only what we'd like to be the case. He doesn't work for the ease of his patience, but he works for our health and our comfort and our joy. If the Lord is your shepherd in this life and in the life to come, you will never lack anything that you ultimately need. One commentator points out that the Lord Jesus was a poor man, yet he was never in want. The Lord Jesus was a poor man, yet he never was in want. I, I think this is true in multiple ways, uh, what David is intending to highlight. So verse 2, our, our lacking, our wanting, it takes the place of the, the physical domain and physical provision. And then verse 3 highlights the physical sustenance that the Lord gives, uh, though of course the, the two are interconnected. So verse 2 reads, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still water. Recently, my daughter Allie went to a farm class here in town, and so she got some exposure to different animals, horses, sheep, goats, things of that nature. And, um, you know, sheep get spooked really quickly. They're, they're jumpy, right? Well, for David to state that the Lord causes me to lie down, it's to state that the Lord brings David to such a good place that David is at rest. He's not always on his guard, always in turmoil, always in distress. The reason David can lie down is because he is in green pastures. Uh, beloved, the Lord doesn't lead his sheep into dry or arid wastelands. He doesn't lead us into the desert to starve, nor the wilderness to be consumed, nor the rivers to be drowned. He leads us to green pastures pastures. Uh, couldn't we go around the room this afternoon and just testify how the Lord has sustained us in difficult and trying seasons, how the Lord has brought us out to green pastures. When you weren't sure how you were going to make ends meet, or you weren't sure if you had the bandwidth to deal with all that is on your plate, when you were tempted to despair and God's providence seemed hard. When all you could see around you was barren wastelands, the Lord even then brought you to a green pasture. He brought you a friend to have your sorrows and double your joys. He brought you a new boss or a new job or a new church. In a season of dryness, he renewed to you the joy of your salvation. In a hard marriage, he brought reconciliation and delight and affection. You know, friends, it's not the prosperity gospel to state that God provides for his people. 
That's what he did in the wilderness those 40 years. That's why Jesus tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He's not telling us to pray for something if God would be totally opposed to it, right? No, God indeed does provide for his people. He does good to his flock. Uh, Verse 2, when it says, he leads me beside still waters, literally, they're waters of rest. God knows that a torrential downpour with overflowing banks and a thrashing current would be no better than a parched wasteland. You and I would be no more helped by drowning than dehydration. God brings us to exactly the waters that we need. And so, friends, it's, it's a comfort to know that whatever our circumstances in life, well, there are no accidents. God brings us to the places that we are. The car that you drive, the neighbors that you have, the degree you didn't get, the family you have, the moves you almost made, the health you wish you didn't have. Beloved, God has given you these things. And it's not because he doesn't love you. It's because he does. It's not because he's a bad shepherd, but a good one. He will not give you too great or too few waters to sustain your stall. God intends for you to have exactly what you do have, lest in giving more you perish or in having less you waste away. God, God knows exactly how much money you have in the bank account. And he will not give you more than you need, lest you be destroyed by that, or too little, lest you be tempted to greed and stealing. Your health is exactly where he wants it to be. Your relationships, as many or as few, to draw you to him. He knows how many trials and afflictions to bring into your life and mine. Uh, God doesn't give kind of one-off pastors and streams, uh, kind of a one-size-fits-all. Like, oh, you know, this will be a good pastor for all the Christians. I hope, I hope it works out. Uh, but friends, the Lord brings you to the pastors that you need, to the waters that you need. And they might be different from your neighbors. They might be different from your spouses. Uh, but you can be assured that God brings exactly what we need. Which brings us to verse 3. It says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Again, there seems to be a slight shift from the physical and material provision of verse 2 to spiritual consolation and comforts here in verse 3. That first phrase, he restores my soul, can, can also be translated, he, he turns my soul. The point seems to be how the Lord reverses not just David's circumstances, not just kind of the outward situation of David's life, but David's inward spiritual outlook. You know, how many Psalms document the Lord saving David out of a bad situation, like Saul or the Philistines or other enemies? Yeah, friends, what do you do if the enemy is within the gates? If the enemy is inside our very own hearts and minds? Well, our only hope for restoration and renewal has to be the Lord who stands outside of us and above us. Our hope is that he will turn us when our souls need correcting. He brings us to our spiritual senses. Uh, This phrase could denote the initial work of conversion 
when a soul is restored to God for the very first time, when somebody puts their faith in Christ. It could refer to the ongoing work of turning that Christians we must engage in every day. I think it might especially refer to to the turning that God does for a backsliding believer, for a Christian whose soul is going wayward, and the Lord turns around, the Lord corrects. How does God do this? Well, it's the same phrase we find in Psalm 19, verse 7. The same identical phrase in Hebrew states, the law of the Lord revives my soul. Apparently, the way that God will will turn our souls back to him is through his word, through his law. Uh, Whether it's for the first time or the 500th time, the way that you and I apprehend spiritual reality and live rightly to it, the way that God changes our minds and our affections and our hopes and our desires is through God's word. He also leads us in paths of righteousness. Uh, The point is that God's guidance in this life is not amoral. God isn't simply trying to provide physical, material needs, prosperity for David. Yes, of course, the Lord is providing there. But the Lord is also leading David in ways of righteousness. Uh, I can't say it better than 19th century pastor John Morrison. Jesus leadeth the sheep of his pasture into the right way. He causes them to choose the paths of holiness which they had forsaken. He strengthens them against the power of sin. He draws them to himself with the cords of love. He makes the most self-denying duties pleasurable and enables them to derive lessons of humility and caution and watchfulness and self-denial and prayer from their past failures. Brothers and sisters, you who would seek to grow in holiness and righteousness... What a comfort it is that God is the one leading us there. You know, the ways of righteousness are not sought out by our own ingenuity. Uh, We're not left to our own devices to figure it out, as it were. But God himself is taking us to these paths, along these paths. So Christian, are you stuck in some indwelling sin? Is there in your own heart, desire and lust and unbelief that appalls you. O saint, be encouraged that even now Christ is working in you the desire to go in that path and indeed he will cause you to go in that path for his own good pleasure, for his own namesake. That's how verse 3 concludes. In both the Old and the New Testament, God has put his name on his people. Our conduct and our behavior has an effect on God's reputation in the world. Uh, How sad it is when one of the leading causes for people failing to believe in Christ is the immorality and hypocrisy of the visible church. This is again how we see that God's glorifying his own name is not separate from his caring for his people. They are one in the same. God has bound up his own reputation and name to your good, Christian, which is really great news because God has, you know, he's bet the house as it were. He's gone all in 
on putting his name on you, on your welfare, so you can be sure that he will keep you to the end in the ways of righteousness. If you are truly in Christ, God's not going to let you go. He won't let you wander off a cliff and die. He will lead you until the end in the way of righteousness for his own namesake. He staked his own reputation. And yet in verse in the paths of righteousness. And yet in verse 4, you know, things take a darker hue, don't they? We read, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. The same God who leads us to green pastures and still waters is the same God who leads us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not as if God is active here, but he's absent there. It's not as if we can expect his his presence here, but he's nowhere to be found in the trials of life. No, David says in the deepest, darkest valley, you are with me. You are there. And again, I do think this helps us understand and interpret verses 1 to 3 when David talks about never lacking anything or being in these tranquil, peaceful places. Because if you remember David's history, you'd say like, David, I'm, I'm glad that you think the Lord is your shepherd and you're in green pastures. But like when you were escaping out the window of your own house, when your father-in-law was trying to murder you, like would you describe that as green pastures? Is, is that the kind of green pastures that I should be expecting? Well, I think we see that here, whether David was being pursued by souls full of deficiencies and difficulties, is this what it means for God to, to take us to green pastures, good grazing grounds? Well, friends, God's leading to safe and gentle seasons is not mutually exclusive with his leading in the darkest of valleys. To refer to, to walking in the Old Testament is to describe a a normal pattern of life, kind of everyday stuff. And sometimes God leads us to live through and walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That that phrase, the the shadow of death, it's a somewhat rare one in Hebrew. Um, Here's how one commentator describes it. The valley of the shadow of death is a scene of great and uncommon distress of such trials as overpower the soul, throw it into amazement, break its purposes, fill it with alarm and horror. It is used to represent those horrible trials, those extreme difficulties and dangers which darken the lot of humanity. Friends, in this life, valleys come. The dark days that you never imagined, that take your breath away in their suddenness, in their pain, and their weight. You know, six families felt it in Nashville this past week, and millions of people across this globe. It is indeed the lot of humanity. You and I will not be able to escape it. And so the reason you should come to church and read your Bible, 
and have good Christian brothers and sisters to encourage you in the faith is that when that day comes, when the walls close in and death and darkness seem to be the most present realities, you need to be reminded that God is with you. The Lord has promised to be your shepherd even there, right? Because that's what David says. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God's presence is not absent in those trying days. No, he is especially present. When David refers to his rod and staff, I think first he, he means that in the dark and dangerous valley, God's rod and staff doesn't allow you or me to be destroyed, right? So if you imagine this dark valley, uh, the Lord guides us and protects us with the, the rod and staff so that we don't perish. So it's a comfort in that sense. But secondly, I think it also means that God's rod and staff are the means whereby God is correcting David to correct him on which way to go and which way to avoid. They discipline him and correct him. And so, friends, one of the marks of Christian maturity is being able to give thanks to God for his disciplining work. One of the marks of Christian maturity is giving thanks to God for his disciplining work, of being comforted by God's correction rather than despising it. Christian, does that describe you? You think about the own tri- your own trials in life. Uh, do you despise what the Lord has brought you? Or can you bless the Lord even through tears? For David, he knew the peace and tranquility of God's leading through abundant pastures. He knew the darkest of valleys were only God's presence. And even God's correction would bring him comfort. And so then Psalm 23 begins to, to move to a conclusion in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 leaves the shepherding imagery and moves to the picture of a banquet. We read, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. That first phrase is a bit hard to interpret. Uh, Is David saying that he feasts in the presence of his defeated enemies? Like after a battle, slain enemies, and David is feasting? Or is David continuing the theme of verse 4? Uh, that, that is, his enemies are still present, yet the Lord, even in the midst of that, blesses David. Um, I, I'm not really sure, to be honest, which one David is, is meaning to evoke. That middle phrase is better translated, you make fatty my head with oil. Uh, it's not really referring to anointing or the anointed one. But just as David's cup overflows, the point is that God lavishes his grace and provision on David. And so I I do think it's instructive to note that David begins with the Lord bringing him to a peaceful place. Uh, In the middle, there is this valley of the shadow of death, but but then David ends on this this note of provision and and joy. I I think one lesson we're to take from that is that, you know, if you are a Christian and heaven is your home, the valley of the shadow of death really is a passing thing. It will last at most 90 or 100 years. Guys, I'm like compared to eternity, that's nothing. It's like a vapor. And then it's gone. David here, he's feasting and dining with no regrets, no tears, no laments. Uh, you and I, 
we need to remember that as one old hymn states, earth has no sorrow which heaven cannot heal. Earth has no sorrow which heaven cannot heal. David here was enjoying the bounty of God's supply. And so verse 6 concludes our passage. David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, previously David had been remarking how he followed the Lord. The Lord was guiding his paths. Well, now the script is flipped. Now the goodness and mercy or steadfast love follow David. And that word follow, uh, it's really great and poetic, but it's probably too soft and generic because the term is much more, gen- uh, much more vigorous than that. It refers to pursuit and chasing, how one army would pursue after the other to the very end till there were no more foes to vanquish. And so, friend, if you are in Christ, did you know that God's mercy and goodness will not stop pursuing you until the very end? It will track you down. It will chase after you in your sinning and in your suffering. When you're most needy, when you're most exalted, when you feel most self-assured, when you are totally dependent upon God's grace, goodness and mercy are ever pursuing you. And the result is that David shall dwell in God's house forever. Now, this might not sound as good to you as it did to David, because if you're wondering, you know, does this mean heaven will just be one long worship service with too many songs, too long of preachers? Uh, No, no, that's not what David's referring to. Uh, The point is that David longs to be with God. In that sense, that's that's why the valley of the shadow of death in some sense, it wasn't so bad. Because in suffering, as so many saints can attest, God often draws nearest. It's when we most become aware of our need for him. And yet David looks forward to the day when he will experience the nearness of God, not just in times of affliction, but in beauty and glory and holiness and splendor and radiance and purity and perfection. He longs to rest in God's house forevermore. And so how should we conclude? Let's conclude with three points of application. First, Jesus is the anointed king of Israel who lived out Psalm 23 perfectly. Throughout his earthly life and ministry, the Lord Jesus looked to his father for guidance and leading. Leading. He didn't speak a word or do a deed of mercy, but by his Father's guiding. He walked perfectly in the paths of righteousness, not for his own glory or comfort or name, but the glory of God. The Father led Christ to peaceful pastures and paths of righteousness, yet the Father also led him where? Through the valley of the shadow of death. And not just the shadow of death, but its very substance. You see, Christ going to the cross was not because the Father's plan had been aborted or absent or been hijacked. It was God's leading that would take Christ to the cross. As Christ walked that road, God prepared a table in the presence of his enemies. Uh, At the Last Supper, I appreciated, Mark, that you brought out uh, the betrayer who was with Jesus. That's really what is happening here in Psalm 23. David is at a table not really just with friends, 
They're all about to forsake him, the Lord Jesus, at the Last Supper on Thursday night. His betrayer. Is there any enemy worse than your betrayer? And yet, that's where Jesus dined the night when he was betrayed. In God's incredible timing and plan, the Lord Jesus then went to the cross and was raised from the third, on the third day so that now he dwells not in the land of the dead, but where is Jesus now? He's in the house of God forevermore at God's right hand, not consigned to Sheol or Hades, but exalted in the heavens. The Lord Jesus fulfills and lives out Psalm 23. And so that second, Jesus becomes our good shepherd. We read of this earlier from John chapter 10. When Jesus calls himself the good shepherd of Israel, that's a pretty big deal uh, because Jesus is assigning and assuming to himself the role of, of God, of shepherd of his people. Jesus is assigning to himself divinity. He's, he's asserting his de- deity and divinity. Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so it is, friends, that when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't for himself, it was for us. Uh, Jesus didn't die just as a model of, hey, here's how to be a good neighbor and love your neighbor. Of course, it true, it's true. It is an act of love, an example of love. But more than that, what do we celebrate this time of year? When Jesus laid down his life, it was to pay for the sins of his people so that we too could be raised from the dead, even as he was. On the cross, Jesus died suffering for our sins, bearing our judgment away. And then he rose as our glorious shepherd. And so third and finally, friends, have you made Jesus your shepherd. I wonder if you notice how personal this psalm is. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. Jesus, David is amazed by what God has done for him personally. Uh, so children in the room, we're so glad that your, your parents bring you here to church to, to hear the Bible and to pay attention to God's word. Uh, have you made Jesus the Lord and Savior and Shepherd of your life? It is a wonderful thing to have believing parents, uh, but it's no substitute for believing in Jesus yourself, making him the shepherd of your own life. Uh, Let me encourage you to talk to your parents over lunch today, or maybe bedtime. You could probably stay up late if you say, what does it mean to make Jesus the shepherd of my life? And if you're here this morning, weary with the trials of life, tired of going it alone, unsure of what paths to take, how can Christ be your shepherd? Well, the first step is to humble yourself and admit that you are a wayward sheep. Isaiah 53, 6 states, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Friends, if you would confess your sins to God, Admit how you've pridefully tried to guide and direct your own life, living by your own standards and own law rather than God's, will cry out to Christ, confessing your sins and calling for mercy, knowing that he will surely give it. As one commentator puts it, the more tender, helpless, or burdened any of the flock may be, the greater will be his compassion. Friends, if you are weary with sin, weary with the trials of life, Turn to Christ as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we long for it to be true in our midst that Jesus' words from Luke 15, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Father, we long for that to be true in this congregation. For the children, Father, we pray that you would draw them to yourself through the person of your son. If there are any here who have not believed in Christ and made him the shepherd of their own lives, we pray that you would, you would cause that to happen. You would lead them to the person of righteousness. We pray for those here who have trusted in Christ. Lord, that we would trust your shepherding, guiding hand in our own lives. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.